Hi, everybody. Once again, it's the uh, Time Machine Show. I'm Jeff Cooper from Classic Christian Rock Radio, and today our guest is Mark Farner. Good morning, Mark. How are you doing today? Good, Brother Jeff. Proud to be sucking air. Oh, that's great. Me too. <laughs> like they say, <laughs> at my age, I'm glad to be anywhere, right? So That's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, can you tell us a bit about your childhood and growing up? Well, I was uh, born in Flint, Michigan. My dad was a World War II veteran tank driver in the 7th Armored Division. Hmm. My mother was the first woman in the United States to weld on Sherman tanks at Fisher Body in Flint, Michigan. Uh, I remember uh, seeing her picture on the Flint Journal of standing on a tank. She had her helmet flipped back. She had her striker in her right hand. And she was like, we can do this, you know. It was one of those pictures. So I I came from a a patriot background. Mm -hmm. Um, My my dad died when I was nine years old. Him and a fellow fireman uh, were killed uh, by a train. They were struck broadside by a train at a crossing that had uh, no lights. Oh, my. um, Yeah, so there were four kids at that time. And my mother remarried about a year and a half after my father's death. Mm-hmm. And, and so I had a stepdad from from then on until just here just a few years ago when he had passed away. And and he was a good man, That's Reginald good. Ford. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good to know. You're a young fellow and uh, you get interested in music, I assume. How did that start for you? What was your beginning in music? My beginning in music was every Sunday, Jeff. Yeah. Uh, the families would get together. My mother uh, moved to Flint, Michigan with her family when she was 16 years old, and they moved here uh, from Leechville, Arkansas. Hmm. And every Sunday, we had jam sessions, either at my Aunt Dorothy's house or at our house. And my Aunt Dorothy had six kids, and at this time, my mom... Uh, you know, she was, she had six kids Uh, eventually, you know, we had, and she had lost our, lost like two sets of twins and three singles. So, I mean, they had a heck of a big family from the, uh, the family, uh, my grandpa Cotton, uncle Woody, uh, uncle Brian, all these people played instruments. And, uh, my dad blew a saxophone and played guitar and and my mother and all the women sang like angels i'm not kidding you the mm-hmm. the family uh singing like that together wow was great so every sunday music 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 and so from the time i was just a little shaver all the way up to well probably i'd say 14 years old or something like that the get-togethers stopped my granddad had passed on and people were getting up in their years and what have you. But uh, when I turned 15, my mother, uh, because she felt sorry for me, I had some football injuries. I was a, a football player, and I, and I loved to play the game, and yeah. I was defense linebacker over center. It was like the roving reporter. <laughs> and uh, got injured, couldn't play anymore, and the doctor told my mother yeah, he's not going to play any more sports. Uh, for a while, you know, he's got water on a knee and some other injuries. So she got me six lessons and rented an acoustic guitar from this music store in Flint, Michigan, Marshall Music. Hmm. I took three lessons, and then the the uh, guitar teacher called my mother 
and told her of a hunting accident that he had had and he could no longer uh, teach me and that I was just going to have to go on and, and watch the guys. I liked hanging out with those guys. They were older than me, but they would uh, they would be showing me a chord here and there. And and, and finally, I, I told those guys, I said, look, if I can just uh, sing with you guys, because none of those guys were standing up and singing. They were just yeah. playing walk on and, you know, playing some yeah. uh, the guitar. Yeah. Yes. Ventures. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah. So I, I started singing with the band. And before I got plugged in, my chord went from my guitar back through the handle of the amplifier and just kind of hung over the back. So I was kind of milli vanillying it, <laughs> and, you know. They, they were playing and I was faking like I was playing, but I was singing into the microphone and they liked me singing. So I, that's the way I did it until I got good enough. One day, Jeff, they plugged me in. Yeah. <laughs> Figured you could play. I've been plugged in ever since, brother. <laughs> oh, we're so glad, too. <laughs> I, I wish yeah. we were a TV show. I'd love everyone to see the guitars behind you and your amps and your setup there. That's your studio or just a, uh, your cool place to hang? This is where we rehearse. Wow. This is, yeah, this is down uh, in our house, uh, down in our basement. Um, it yeah. used to be an auto potty shop before it was a house. It, oh. it's like it's got tall ceilings so in here we can jam and the sound has some place to go that's you know we're amazing. not killing each other yeah so that, that's i'd love to be there oh boy i'll have to come and visit yeah. sometime just amazing love looking it. love it love it do you still have your first guitar i have my first, uh guitar that i played with grand funk and that mm -hmm. that is a famous guitar yeah it's a messenger mm -hmm. aluminum neck and uh, I just, I played it so much, I wore the frets right down to where you can't play it. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't want to give it to somebody to have them. I mean, it's an aluminum neck. And and when I would take it to somebody, they go, oh, I've never seen one with aluminum neck. I said, okay, you don't get this one. You know? <laughs> so it's, in the, it's in the state of, uh, you know, worn out, uh, yeah, yeah. but it's still in fine shape. And... Uh, it's my baby. That's, That's my little baby, right? That's there. good. So it's not hanging up in a hard rock somewhere anyway, since you're, <laughs> you've got it. Some of your early bands, tell us about some of your early on uh, music endeavors. Well, uh, I got together with uh, Kurt Johnson. Kurt Johnson was like the first guitar player um, that I ever, you know, did licks back and forth. And, and he would show me things and I would show him things and, and we had us a band, and we were called Mojo and the Nightwalkers. Mm. Uh, so Mojo and the Nightwalkers, when we had Mickey Thompson on bass and Rod Raymond on drums, there was myself and Kurt Johnson. Well, Kurt Johnson was, ended up being one of our main roadie people uh, when Grand Funk took off. He's, he's yeah. my friend today. We are still friends, brother, today. Awesome. Yeah. We were back yeah. then. Yeah. And we used to set up Jeff and my uh, he his grandmother had this big radio that was made out of wood. You know, it was a tube mm -hmm. radio and it it was had a great big speaker in it. And we used to sit there and dial that thing after 11 o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. You could start picking up AM skip. Right. And we'd pick up 
John R. way down south in Dixon. His it's the Royal Crown hairdressing show, <laughs> and it was W W L A C in Nashville, Tennessee, and he would play Muddy Waters and all this blues stuff. I mean, deep, deep stuff. And Kurt and I would split a loaf of bread, white bread, uh, with mayonnaise on half horseradish on the other half and you fold that up and just sit there and eat and listen to this deep stuff mm. and we'd wipe out a loaf of bread uh <laughs> with all the you know and and then wipe each other out later oh my god just to be around each other <laughs> yeah know? good times wow it, it was a gas to say the least <laughs> <laughs> amazing so your big break, I guess, came in 1969. Uh, tell us about that. Grand Funk Railroad, uh, Shea Stadium. How does that come about? Well, well, Shea Stadium was 71, but our big break okay. was 69. Yes. The Atlanta Pop Festival. Mm -hmm. And we uh, we were the opening act because the attorneys that did the legal work uh, for the Pop Festival were out of New York City, and they just happened to be the attorneys uh, for Terry Knight. So Terry got them to work a deal with the promoters of the Atlanta Pop Festival that they would give them a, a, a break in their attorney fee if we would go on. They would play us first and let us open the show. We would play for free and it wouldn't cost them a cent. And so they made this deal and we headed out in a friend's van with a U-Haul trailer on the back and we're headed for Atlanta, Georgia. Hmm. And the guy uh, who was the driver, he he was lent to us too, uh, along with the van. <clears throat> and he'd just driven a long ways. And I said, man, are you sure you can drive okay? I'm, I'm good. I'm, so I, I'm over riding shotgun in this Econoline van. And I, I wake up and I see the sign. This is long before I-75 was yeah. finished. And so there, you had all these back roads back then. And I look up, as I wake up, I look up and the sign says I-75 to the right. And I go, hey, I-75 right there. And so he goes, the driver, man, he makes a hard right. And he flipped that U-Haul trailer over oh. uh, and down in the ditch. And you know those safety chains? Yes. Uh, they they didn't work, Jeff. Oh, man. <laughs> they, they just <clears throat> popped. Oh, boy. And this, there, there goes our equipment. So we ended up taking all of the stuff, all the equipment out of the U-Haul. Yeah. We uh, righted the U-Haul. All the guys got out. And we pushed it back over onto two wheels, loaded the equipment back into it, and then we're going down the side of the expressway kind of on the you know on the shoulder just kind of going along with our four ways on and this tire came off the u-haul trailer and oh. passed us the, oh. the wheel oh man it was a joke <laughs> oh. uh, to retrieve this thing from a farmer's field way over on the other side of the expressway and we finally got it we took a couple of lug nuts off the other side uh so, you know, so we could have something to hold this tire on. And and then we just kind of went at four or five miles an hour, just barely creeping along and down the expressway to the first exit, which had a U-Haul trailer rental place. We swapped everything out, put it in the new trailer, and away we go. Well, by the time we got to Atlanta, they were 
almost ready for us. <laughs> and the guys are just scrambling. And some of the performers had pulled completely off of the amplifiers and the chassis had big holes where the transformers used to be <laughs> and the wires got broken. Oh. And so all the roadies grabbed a couple of people from other bands that were helping them out. Some of the, and, and roadies are like that. I mean, yeah. they, they are a family. So if, mm. if one band needs some help, man, these other roadies from these other bands come in there. They're soldering wires. They're putting stuff. They're duct taping things back together. <laughs> they put everything up on the stage and it was time for us to go on and until this moment only the only uh, perspective we had of this audience was of course we could hear them kind of rumbling and you could hear this and that and kind of a lot of a lot of conversation and you look out through the fence and you could look because it was pretty much flat you could look into the first few rows but that's all you could see well it was time for us to go on i went up the stairs to the stage and now i'm 15 feet over the top of the heads of this audience i look out and jeff it's a sea of people oh. it is people as far as, uh, to the horizon i'm going oh my goodness i <laughs> really gotta bad i gotta go pee <laughs> and the roadie goes anything you're getting out there and you're doing that show <laughs> yeah so we went out and played our first album mm -hmm. i had written all these songs by that time and we ended with uh wilson pickett's land of a thousand dances nice and the crowd loved it because i had this paisley shirt on and back back then 50 bucks to spend on a shirt yeah that was a lot of money yes high class and, and, and did, yes i didn't want to <clears throat> mess it up it's sticking to me so bad <laughs> i was just i was just like in a straight jacket and I said, man, I got to get this thing off. So I ripped it off, and the audience goes nuts. And I went, oh, that worked. Yeah. <laughs> that really. And so I, I remained. That was part of my uh, my M.O. from yeah. that point on. I I would start with a vest on, but that vest yeah. had come off after the second song. And then I was shirtless, and that was that was my moniker right then, uh, the shirtless yeah. guy, the shirtless lyrics of Mark Farner. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, and the long hair. <laughs> oh, amazing. So you outsold the, the Beatles at Shea Stadium, is that right? The, uh, the next night or the next, uh, was it a year after they were there? It was in <clears throat> 1971, and, and we actually, we, we started the year, <clears throat> we were in Europe. And we did uh, several shows in Europe, but uh, we used the band called Humble Pie over yep. there mm -hmm. to open our shows. And they were doing such a bang-up job. Uh, I asked my manager at the time, I said, Terry, man, these guys are doing a good job. Why don't we bring them to the States and have them open our tour when we get home? And he said, that's a good idea. I'll check with D. Anthony, who was their manager. And uh, so those guys... Uh, came to the United States and their debut show, wouldn't you know, Shea Stadium. Yeah. <laughs> so mm -hmm. they played the 50,000 their first show and and the stage was set up at second base. Yeah. And the stadium, like a half uh, circle, you mm -hmm. know, and 55,000 people, a half circle. It's yeah. kind of like their focus point of that half circle was second base, I tell you, because when they started singing, I'm getting closer to my home. Mm -hmm. They drowned the PA system. They were so, and I was trying to sing with tears in my eyes, buddy. Yeah, I'm telling you, yeah. it was very emotional. 
and uh, and they they loved us. We had a, a billboard in Times Square at, at at that time in in our life in our career. We rented a billboard. It was fifty thousand dollars a month. So we paid for that first month, and then the billboard workers went on strike. Oh boy! And they were strike for like four months, and our faces remained on, on that block long billboard in mm-hmm. Times Square above yeah. the. Axe Museum, yeah. you know, for like five, five, six months, we were there. And yeah, it didn't yeah. cost us anything that first <clears throat> month. So that was a blessing from God. Yes, for sure. So tell us a bit about some of your songs. Uh, there's some major, major songs. Uh, I have memories of uh, Bad Time for Being in Love. Every young fellow went through that. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit the story of some of the songs? Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, Bad Time was... Uh, it was played on the radio more than any other song in 1975. And I got a BMI award for Bad Time. Uh, but Bad Time came about as a personal conflict between myself and my first wife. And I'm sitting in dining room, spinet piano playing, and I hear these words of putting a 12-inch cast iron skillet through my forehead and oh i'm thinking oh man this is a bad time to be in love you know i started writing <laughs> that song and yeah. i wrote this song right then jeff it just yeah. came out and um, and i took it to rehearsal yeah and uh, i showed it to the guys and of course showed the keyboard player mm-hmm. uh and then i added my guitar part to it and it it became what it was it was a it wasn't number one, but it got played more. Than it the sure one. did. I heard it all over the place, loved it, and I could probably still sing you every word. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. You know, that was in days when the, the FCC 777 rule was in effect. Yeah. And you could own 7 AM, 7 FM, 7 television stations here in the United States. Mm-hmm. And that put into place to prevent uh, any kind of monopoly, which right. we are how dying from, I yeah. mean, we are from this monopoly that they have over the airwaves. Yeah. But back, back then people would call in and request that song. And that's that I'd give that, you know, as a reason why that song was so popular because yeah. people kept calling in, calling in, they had to play it. Yeah. But, uh, in, in 1996, they deregulated the FCC mm-hmm. and the, the uh, ownership went to all these corporate conglomerates. Well, it's it, it looks like on paper, a lot of corporate, but it's just a few families. The yeah. control we see it. prior to that deregulation was moms and dads. It was grandpas and grandmas. We'd go to uh, Cleveland and play the Upbeat Show, and Herman Spiro, who was the owner of that station, would have us come over. We'd have a barbecue chicken. We'd play with his kids out in the backyard or playing touch football. You know, it was always a family thing, always family. And the owners of the stations that we would go to always treated us with such great respect and and like like we're family. Yeah. But then, my brother, there was moral conscience over what our children saw and heard on the television and radio. Yeah. And that's that's, you know, the 777 rule uh, was our saving grace until they deregulated under the uh, Clintons in 96. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was the beginning. of it. it was like they, they slit. 
they started that cut across the artery yeah and yeah. and it's just been dragging on and letting more of the life out and stifling the creative process uh, that should be in play in our world today so other other tunes uh locomotion there's a quite a nice story around that as well that was uh, one of those uh you're fooling around and uh someone started singing the song and you thought we should do it how did that go well i uh, had gone home we were recording with todd rundgren and, and rundgren came to michigan to do all the bed tracks yeah which would be every track except for you know except for the vocals we were going to yeah. go uh, to criteria and finish uh the vocals yes so I had gone home across the street to the farm, and, and we're talking, this is a dirt road out in the country, and uh, and the studio is back in a forest on the other side of the road. So I, I get done with my lunch. I'm going back to the studio. I'm walking down the two-track road. It kind of meanders back through the woods, and I could hear the guys out in the parking lot, and they were out having a smoke or whatever um, during this lunch break period, mm-hmm. and the studio door was wide open and i because i could hear them i just start singing everybody's doing a brand new dance now you know and they could hear me of course yeah, and yeah. they start in the backgrounds come on baby do the locomotion yeah. and and as singing to each other and i'm getting closer i finally step around the the last bunch of trees there and i can look into the parking lot those guys can see me <laughs> We are still singing back and forth to each other. Wow. And while this is going on, Rundgren walks out of the studio and he says, what the heck is that? What is that? <laughs> I said, are you kidding me? That's Little Eva. That's that's the locomotion. He yeah. says, oh, man, y'all come in right now. Everybody in the studio. We got to cut this song right wow. this minute. Yeah. Why it's shot our mind. <laughs> so we go in and back then, uh, Jeff, it was a, the days of two-inch tape, analog yep. tape, rolling by the, the recording heads. Mm-hmm. Todd went into the control room. He hit the red button and came out and joined us in the studio. Wow. And he was the one doing real high falsetto parts yes. and yeah. clanging and hashtags together. And, and, yeah. and when I did guitar lead, he grabbed the uh, tape head on the Echoplex I was using, and he would run mm. it from one end of that to the other end of the echoplex and it sounded like the guitar was eating itself oh you know, boy it was just a <laughs> yeah so run was very uh spontaneous yeah and he would just do off the cuff but he was it was always musical yeah and of course this song went to number one yeah which was the second time it was a number one that's song. right I, uh, little eve made it number one and grand funk made it number one and i think there was a gal after us it went to number one with too yeah so it's a great story it's a great and tune. Carol King. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Carol yeah. King. And little Eva was Carol King's housekeeper. Mm-hmm. And as Carol was working on the song, she heard little Eva in the kitchen singing the song. Oh. And she said, oh, my gosh, you got the voice for this song. And she takes her down to Motown, gets her a deal. They release it. And, of course, the rest is history. Nice, nice. Uh, one of your very well-known songs, in fact, my band plays it as well, Some Kind of Wonderful. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that song, brother, was our warm-up song uh, a lot of nights on the way to the gig. Mm-hmm. We get 
limousine and we're just kind of, you know, warming our vocals up a little bit. And we'd, we'd do that uh, quite often because uh, Brewer would take a part, I'd take a part, and we'd sing together. And then one night, the uh, the manager at the time, Andy Cavalieri, he rolls down that front window and he says, you guys, man, what is that song? Well, I said, that's a Soul Brother 6, man. That's a some kind of wonderful. He says, you should record that. I, I'm mm. not kidding you. I think it would be a big hit for you. So yeah. we took his advice, and it was a smash hit. Mm-hmm. And John Ellis, who is the writer of that song, mm-hmm. him and I have become great friends. And uh, I got to hand him his award at the West Virginia Music Hall of Fame. I was on stage giving my brother his award, his achievement nice. award for yeah. and uh, then I got to sing with him. I took the second verse. He says, "Man, you come out, you got to sing with me." Mm-hmm. So we just together, and and we're brothers, man. Yeah. I'm telling you, uh, calls me, I call him. We just stay in touch with one another. He's yeah. a, a good soul, very good man. Amazing. So jump up to 1987. You re, re uh, wrote some lyrics for that song for your, some of your Christian albums. There, uh, tell us a That's little bit about that. How did that come about? How well, did you get involved with Christian music? Well, I, when I was nine years old and my dad died, Billy Graham was doing a crusade in Flint, Michigan. He was at Atwood Stadium, and it was being televised. Yeah. And just before my dad died, he bought our first television. So I'm in the dining room, my aunts and uncles and grandma, I mean, people, a lot of people trying to uh, comfort my mother, trying to console her a little. And I just wanted to, I wanted a break Mm -hmm. in that. So I walk through the farmhouse, I walk into the living room, and here's Billy Graham saying, if you're hurting, if you need a touch from God, and he's and, and it's like, did he see me walk in here? I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, you know. Uh, and and he says at one point he says, if you need to pray, if you want to pray with me, just walk over and put your hand on a television set. Yeah. So my nine year old hand went on that television yeah. set, and I received Christ as my savior. Amen. And I I prayed, you know, for for my mom and my family and. And and I have been ever since. Yes. But and all, and I I made my success in the world. We never went to church except for uh, Easter. Once in a while, we'd go to my great grandmother's church, yep. which was a free Methodist church. Mm-hmm. Um, but in nineteen in nineteen eighty five, yeah, my my wife had left me, mm-hmm. and I just I was kind of egoed out at the time. I'm thinking, well, sh- she'll be back. Yeah. Uh, you know, she'll be back tomorrow, the next day, the next day. And my kids are going, where's mama? Yeah. And I'm thinking, oh, she's over at Aunt. She's over here. And I'm about halfway through a 12-pack, Jeff. And I mm-hmm. look, look over, and here in the corner of this log cabin that we built, one of the windows was a leaded glass window that a friend of mine made for me. And it was like 3,000 pieces of glass in there. But it was a pheasant. Yeah. And it was a beautiful, beautiful uh, window and the sun when the sun came through it it shined all that glass and i'm sitting over at the table looking and that that pheasant turned into i could see myself standing in front of the television with my hand on the tv set mm-hmm. it was a vision that i had at that time 
and it wasn't from the beer. I can tell no. you that. Yeah, yeah. This, this was from the Lord, and yeah. I went, oh, my God, that's it. I need God. So I went, to, I started going to churches. I was there on Wednesday. I was there on Fridays. I was there on going to these different churches. Mm-hmm. I I was turned off by most of the churches I went to because yeah. it was like this fire and brimstone, and they tried to scare you into receiving yeah. Lord. And it, it that was not working for me. Finally, I went into this church. Um, it was a, it was Sunday morning, and I heard about this church that they are uh, Assembly of God, mm-hmm. and I walked. 86-year-old pastor, Pastor Exley, was preaching on the institution of marriage according to God's word and how most people walk out the front door of that church and they don't implement the oaths, the sacred oaths that they gave one another in front of the congregation and the pastor. And, And it was like this guy... He had my story. He was preaching to me. I'm thinking, man, does he know? (laughs) (laughs) He is shooting, and there's no blanks in his gun. He's hit in the heart with every word. So uh, when he got done, he gave an altar call, Uh and I bullied to the front. Yeah. I told him what's going on with my life and my wife, and I said, can we pray for my wife? I, I would like God to bring my wife back to me. He says, you pray, I'll agree. Yeah. So I prayed in my heart, in my words at that time, and and in my distraught uh, temperament, and he agreed with me. And that day, Mm -hmm. 50 miles away in another city where she was, she received Christ as her saint. Beautiful. And two days after that, we got back together. We have been married 43 years, January 8th. We are uh, going to live happily ever after. I got into the Christian music yep. because I like uh, the church that we were going to after we moved from Onaway area where where I uh, gave my life back to Christ there. Uh, we came across the state to get our kids um, in a better school system. Mm-hmm. And that was our motive for moving. But we got into a church. It was a non-denominational church. And it, it was... Uh, you know, good music and everything. and But there was just something that I wasn't getting about, you know, the dressing up the, to go up on the stage. They said, well, you can't you can't be on the podium now unless you got a tie. And I went, a tie? See, because I played in the church band. Yeah. And we're, we were across the street from where the big church got built. We were in the guy's garage. He had a three-car garage, and it was packed. Mm-hmm. And... You go up on that podium with your flannel shirt or your T-shirt or whatever, and you play and you praise God, and, and everybody had a great time. But then when we moved across the street, it was like they wouldn't let me up there to play the instrument unless I had a tie on. Yeah. Uh, so I came one morning, and I had <clears throat> a tie on, but I had it up here. Yeah. It was a uh, yeah. headband, like black tie. And I, I argued with him, hey, listen, this is a tie. It yeah. is a tie. It's up and here. <laughs> if I walk out on that podium, I will have a tie on. Yeah. Uh, they didn't very much of that. They, uh. didn't, they didn't think that was as cute as I thought it was. No. <laughs> <laughs> but that was that. And, uh, and they wanted me to put my ministry uh, under 
the elders, so and they said, well, you know, if, if you put your ministry on and under us and we are guiding you through this, um, if if you got to play over in uh, Kentucky someplace and we uh, hear from God and we say, oh, you shouldn't play that that gig in Kentucky because blah blah blah, we've heard from God. What are you gonna do? And I looked at that guy and I looked around at those elders and I said, you guys, this move from going from the garage to this building we're standing in has messed everybody's heads up. Do you, you're not talking to somebody who's just some kid out here. I said, I am a minister of the gospel. I go to the bars and nightclubs because that's where God wants me. Exactly. I have an open. I go to the prisons. I go to maximum security prisons because mm -hmm. I have the clearance, and that's where God wants me. I go to the drug rehabs. I go to the county jails. I go to the prison camps. Yeah. I go to 13- to 19-year-old juveniles yeah. in Camp Chihuahua by Grayling, Michigan, and and I'm welcome because I don't have that religious nature. Right. I have, uh, I have the Lord Jesus Christ on my mind and in my heart, and I want to speak truth to people. I want to set them free. I don't want to put those people in any kind of bondage or put them in debt consciousness to some words that I'm telling them they got to do. And I'm going to tell you, just between you and I and the audience right mm -hmm. now, when I did maximum security prison in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, Chaplain Moore, uh, Brother Ray Moore, told us... Uh, you know, as soon as you say Jesus Christ, about half of this audience will get up and leave. I just want you to be prepared for that. Yeah. So uh, we said, okay. And we got 500 inmates sitting there. Wow. And I down and I say, how you doing, you sons of bitches? And he <laughs> went, no, this, is, this is not going to be religious. All of a sudden, they're looking at each other like, oh, my. And I grab my guitar and I start wailing on that guitar and singing yeah. to tracks and um i'm singing jesus loves me you know i'm, I'm telling yeah. them in rock roll so th they got my spirit they yeah. caught what i was about and the fellow that did the ministry with me brother dave was saved in prison he mm. was in prison uh doing time for armed robbery and murder wow and the lord saved him yeah so his conjecture with those prisoners was perfect his testimony touched their heart my testimony touched their heart and brother i don't do altar calls i think no. that is that is offensive to the spirit because yeah. our relationship with god the creator is our personal amen uh inside mm -hmm. it's you know going in your prayer closet brother yeah uh, that's what I, and I, and I explained to these people, and and guess what? Not one prisoner got up and left. All right. They all, Amazing. and we yep. took three cases of Bibles with us <clears throat> and gave out those Bibles. Uh, at the end of our program, I, I told them, I am not going to give an altar call because that's that's just show. Yeah. And I don't want any here. I want it to be heart because I, I believe you guys are here in our hearts yeah, and I see on your faces, I see the smiles, and we're getting through to you. And everybody's like shaking their head. Yeah, they're he, they're getting through. Yeah, I said so. Here's the deal: you're in prison, 
and you got relatives that need to see you out, that yeah. need to see you rehabbed, mm-hmm. that need your nephews, your nieces, your grandkids, your granddaughter, your grandsons, they need to be this role model. They don't need you to be in prison so they could tell people, yeah, my grandpa's in prison, or my dad's in prison. They need you out, and they need you to be the role model to keep them out of places like this. Yeah. So if that message got through to you and you're sitting there with your guts just rolling, I want you to stand with me. Yeah. The whole place stood up, brother. Yeah. 500 inmates stood to feet and they are the ones who pledged to change their life. Amen. That with, stand, with standing up, that meant yes. Yeah. We're going to be different. We're going to yeah. get this place, and we are going to be the role models that you talk about. Amazing. Isn't it amazing? <laughs> There's the song. Isn't it, brother? It sure is. Yeah. <clears throat> Can you tell us some uh, memories of uh, Cornerstone Blues Jam? Have you, you were at Cornerstone once or twice, uh, Larry Howard's Blues Jam you took part in. Can you tell us about that? Yes, the Cornerstone Blues Jam. Actually, I was there once. Okay. And... And Larry Howard, oh my gosh, what a great core band yeah. in the first place. They had a core band that would do everybody, uh, Margaret Becker, you know, yep. everybody that got up there, this same band learned all the tunes. Yeah. And uh, it, was, it was a great band. Yeah. Um, and I got up and I did, uh, I did. Uh, Judgment Day Blues. Uh, blues. And they loved it. And then we did. Uh, some kind of wonderful right. the Jesus version. Yep. And Margaret Becker came out and joined me, and we tore it up. She can sing up a storm on yeah. a calm day. That girl can she ever? I'm telling you, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that it was a great jam, and uh, what a, a great bunch of musicians on that stage. Uh, everybody with heart. Yeah. Did you get a chance to uh, get to know Larry much, or was it kind of like uh, off stage, on stage? Did you get to talk to him at all? I didn't get to talk to him yeah. much, just a little bit, and, and he uh, just gave me a lot of accolades, saying thanking yeah. me for my contribution to his uh, musical career. Yeah. And I guess a lot of guys, because I was not a complicated guitar player. I mean, I was just learning how to play guitar, actually, you know, yes, when the band yeah. started. And that kind of, it was evident through the years. But it was good because uh, a lot of guitar players got started to that stuff, and uh and and at that show, uh, there was three other guitar players that came up and thanked me too. So. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Hey. It's a brotherhood for sure. Talking about concerts, I know you you were supposed to do a anniversary tour of some kind last year. How did that get affected? I guess it sure did with this COVID thing going on. So how did that change for you uh, performing? There's no live performances out to to audiences. Yeah, which which effectively put the zipper on my lips uh, for the time that we've been off. Because not only uh, music comes out of that uh, speaker, but conjectures, talking to the audience, speaking at the right time, feeling the emotion, the waves that come from the people, and and being led by the Spirit to say certain things at certain times, and, and, and people getting set free just from the prophecy of the instruments they prophesy on their own of the love mm-hmm. and we 
every time before we go on, every time before we take that stage, we give the stage to the Lord. Yeah. Because because God is love and God walked amongst us and we have that love in our heart. We are redeemed by that love. Yeah. And that's what we pour and that's what we reach out with. Mm-hmm. And and people are affected. People are changed. Uh, you know, it's it's a it's really a miracle what happens with music. And since the stifling, uh, as you mentioned, brother, I mean, it's been a long time since yeah. bands have been out uh since the minstrels have been able to speak to the audience through the microphones, yeah. this is an important part of our of our uh, music family. All the fans and the bands, yes, together as a family, we we love the music and we are related and we are associated by the music and 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 you know we craft <clears throat> it so that uh, it's lovely and that it it spreads love, but. Uh, the powers and principalities and the rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in high places seem mm-hmm. to have a grip on the whole thing. The prince of the power of the air. Yeah. 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 Well, we'll we'll get through this and we'll get back to, to things uh, hopefully, hopefully soon. We're praying every day. So you had just uh, been involved with Alice Cooper in a, an album. Uh, called Detroit Stories. So tell us about the background behind that, uh, your involvement with Alice, and, and uh, what, uh, what, what are you doing on the album? The songs that I was involved with Alice um, were the first recordings, and it was like a, an EP of, I think there was five or six songs on there they ended up putting on there, which was like a little teaser for the the album that's out now, Detroit Stories, but the the teaser was called uh, Breadcrumbs. Right. And my my manager, Avi Steinman, uh, from L.A., calls and he says, hey, we just got a call and Alice Cooper's going in the studio and he's doing, he's paying tribute to some of the early Detroit stuff, some of the punk rock stuff, uh, uh, Susie Quattro and mm-hmm. Seeger's East Story and... He started talking like, and I said, "Man, I'm in it. If if he wants me to play guitar and sing, I'm there." Uh, yes. So, yeah, man, and, and and I knew that Wayne Kramer from the MC5 would be there, mm-hmm. and I blown away by Wayne Kramer back uh, 1968 or nine, I think it was. We played at the Michigan State Fair uh, in Detroit. Yeah, and the MC5 was bill um iggy and the stooges was on the Mm -hmm. bill the rationals of savage grace a lot of local bands yeah um and and when mc5 took that stage brother jeff it was like Mm. wow i (laughs) every in the place turned yeah and they they were man they were coming out of those amplifiers and uh, i had to share with brother wayne my reaction to him and his guitar playing in the band. And he just, he's such a, a docile, a kind hearted soul. Mm-hmm. You would never, you would never put his personality, uh, behind that guitar yeah. <laughs> of him. Really seriously. And, and what a, what a gentleman he is a, and a great, uh, player still plays his butt off. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. and so we talked a lot in between the songs 
and Johnny Badagic, who was the drummer on these breadcrumb songs, he was with Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels, and and he has got a backbeat. He his backbeat sets at the bottom of the groove, and mm-hmm. and it doesn't move. Wow. It is just so solid. Yeah, and uh, and to play with him, it is it's a joy because mm-hmm. he leads you. He plays lead drums, and I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, yeah. brother Jeff. Yeah. He leads next chord change <clears throat> you don't even have to think about it here it comes Wham, yeah. blah, blah. so be- between johnny bedanchik wayne kramer uh myself and paul randolph who is a bass player from detroit um that, w- that i had met there uh, at that recording session at rust belt uh, studios mm-hmm. in detroit after you know impressing me and everybody else with his bass playing we go in to do background vocals and he's like, he's got to be at least six three, and I'm down here at five seven. I'm looking up at him. I'm thinking, <laughs> how is that high voice coming out of that big man? Yeah, he's a yeah. great singer. And uh, I called him after our session because I was looking to change uh, and get my band to to come out of the city of Detroit or somewhere in Michigan so we could all be together when we left this state. And he did. At the time, he was living in Detroit. He still lives, but he moved to a different place in Detroit. Uh, and he said, yeah, man, I would love to do that. You, you know, send me the songs. You yep. want me to learn. And so he came up here to this room that you're looking at behind me. Yep. And we sat here. And we woodshedded and got the, the set together. And he is, is with me in my Mark Farner's American band now. Yes. Uh, and mm-hmm. he's a solid brother. Yeah. And, and we, we all love Jesus, man. We all love Jesus. Yeah. It's such a... You know, a thrill to be out with with brothers, and 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 if you got nobody else, and times are tough, at least you got each other. Yes, yeah, yeah. I meant to ask you earlier about uh, Ringo, Ringo's All Star Band. You were involved with them uh, several times, I believe. Um, any good stories from that time? Yeah, the uh, I did one tour with them, brother. It was in '95. Mm-hmm. Uh, we started up in uh, Vancouver, right? Rehearsing. And I missed it. And <laughs> I was going. <laughs> I was going to go, and I missed it. Uh, well, we we were there for two weeks before we headed over to Japan. Yeah. So, and my family was out there in an apartment with me, and we rented a boat and went up through the sound. It was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but Ringo came over to meet my kids, and uh, what a what a gentleman he is. Yeah. But he was yeah. he was uh, kind of at a point in his life then where. He had put this thing on YouTube. Uh, Don't send me anything for autographs because you won't get it back. I'm not signing anything ever again. He really got on this rant and he was quite angry. Yeah. And and I could see after being out with him, mm-hmm. uh, he, he nobody gives him any kind of space. Yeah. He just is, everybody's shoving uh, pens and papers in front. Please sign. Please sign. Yeah. And uh, it was. Kind of weird. We went over to Japan. We're sitting there in Tokyo, brother, and we're at a press conference where Ringo, uh, we're on a podium, a stage up there, mm-hmm. and there's a big long table. Mm-hmm. Ringo sets in, and the band goes down both sides, kind of like the Last Supper. Yeah. With Ringo middle, right? <laughs> and this little uh, Japanese girl from the, one of the uh, local rags. She steps up and she said, I would like to ask Mr. Farner a question. And so I stand up, right? Yeah. I stand up at the table. And she said, 
I want to know, Mr. Farner, what is it like playing with Beetle? And I looked up. <laughs> I looked over at Ringo. I said, honey, Ringo puts his pants on one leg at a time, just like uh, I do. Yeah. And, and he stands up, Brother Jeff. Thank you, Brother Mark. And he comes over and he gives me a great big hug. Yeah. A meaningful hug. Yeah. And slaps me on the back for yeah. giving him that recognition yeah, of you, just being a man. Because you get it, and, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, do I get it? And after seeing him, I mean, we're sitting in first class riding to Japan. These kids come up there. They want Ringo to sign something. And yeah. he is in no mood. He, believe no. me. Uh, so it, it was not a pretty sight. And, and they went back with no autographs. But uh, his his motivation is, you know, he wants to play from the heart. He wants to be around people who are heart players. Yeah. But then he's got other part that, that all that stardom stuff. He says, I, you know, I just can't uh, disguise myself because you think of it. If he puts a ball cap on and sunglasses, he looks like Ringo with a ball cap. Yes, he sunglasses. does. Yeah. There's you know no. Who he is. <laughs> yeah. 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 And he was. He was so pissed when we got back to the United States because we had done a show uh, at the Budokan and it was it was taped. He, yeah. he had, you know, several cameras uh, shooting the show. Mm -hmm. But by the time we got back to the U.S., that that tape was bootlegged and yeah. released. He was oh, so mad. Man. Mm. Oh. Terrible. But that's the way it is. Yeah. You're that popular. Yeah. People are unreasonable. <laughs> yes, that's it. <laughs> so you have a new DVD coming out. Uh, tell us about that and how people can get it. So there's a, a pre-order on, I guess. Uh, what's the DVD, a concert? The, the DVD is yeah. a concert in Santiago, Chile at mm. Teatro Calpalacan. It's a go. theater in the in the room, a big place, and uh, the we cut the DVD there with a eight camera shoot and it, it shows the, uh, this DVD. There's 16 um, live performances plus two bonus videos plus five bonus songs all mm -hmm. for 14.99. Such a, go. what a deal <laughs> order now. <laughs> That's right. And, and pre-orders, uh, or you can get them at markfarner.com mm -hmm. for for the pre-orders and out of that 14.99 Lisa my wife and I take $3 and donate to Veterans Support Foundation right which is an organization right in the United States yeah. that that helps veterans who are down on their luck yeah. and uh scrapes people up off the street puts them in homes you know houses with other veterans who've recovered and it's it's of uh, veterans by veterans for veterans and these are the same people who put on the guitar army back you know in the early days in detroit at harpo's uh and it's so i i trust them they've been around yeah. a long time that's great and and keith king he who is the head of uh, vietnam veterans of america um, ask me, uh, you know, did I want to be, you know, there for the ceremony? Could, could I bring my guitar and play I'm your captain for 
the all the troops yes. at the wall in D.C. And so I I said, Keith, are you guys going to have a stage and lights and everything? Oh, he says, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going to have all that. I said, uh, rather than just me coming with my guitar, I'll tell you what we'll do. And we'll do it for free. It won't cost you a cent. Mm-hmm. I'll put the tour bus on the road with my band. We will come and we will play a free entire show for whoever shows up there. Awesome. And we did. And, brother, we were warming our hands up on the light bulbs in this dressing room. Oh. <laughs> it was 36 degrees that day. Yeah. And we, and not only was it the, the Vietnam veterans uh, from the U.S., but our Canadian brothers and sisters mm-hmm. were there as well. Yeah. And when we entered into I'm Your Captain Closer to Home, there was not a dry eye anywhere around that stage. Wow. Uh, everybody was caught up in the emotion. Yeah. And and it was hard to sing it because it felt like I had a softball in my neck, you know, trying to oh, get that. past that emotion. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but what a what a great feeling. What a great reward to to do that and be rewarded like that. Oh, my gosh. It just, it, you know. It keeps me uh, wanting to go back and entertain because they are truly the greatest audiences. You uh, bet. So they respect you and they are so appreciate you. Yes. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. So that that's amazing. Yeah. Yep. Just ask Bob Hope. He could tell you, well, he's he's gone, but uh, he could tell you what it is to do for the troops. They really do appreciate it. Well, we do appreciate the time you've taken today. Sorry about the technical difficulties. This has been an absolute pleasure and a thrill to talk to you, Mark. And um, I'd like to thank everybody for listening. This has been the Time Machine Show. Mark, are there any final thoughts you have for our audience today? Yes. I would like to express the the Bible says, Oh, no man anything except to love him. But just take the first part of that. Oh, no man anything. That is the mind of Christ. This is the mind of Christ. Oh, no man anything he would never allow himself to, to become indebted to or beholden to anything or anyone. And that, my friends, is an attainable state of mind for you and me in our present condition. Because it's up to us individually to determine if we are going to accept debt or reject it. And with your heart of love, with who you are as a person... I would compel you to reject any debt, not just financial debt, but people have debt that they put other people into unfulfilled expectations. There's all forms of debt. And I pray to the Spirit every day, show me those anchors, Lord. If there's any more anchors, <clears throat> I want to take bolt cutters to the, to the anchors that are holding me back from being everything that you want me to be in this bone suit. And... That's the key to it. Debt consciousness does not belong to Christians. We need to set people free, just like we do when we go to the prisons. We set them free. We don't put them in bondage. We don't ask them for money. We are giving. And that's what the Spirit wants, to give itself. Love wants to give. It doesn't cost anything. Give it with all your heart, brothers and sisters. Beautiful. Amen. Thank you so much, Mark.